welcome to The Reality Revolution. I'm your host, Brian Scott. Today's episode is dedicated to visualization and creativity. They're intricately involved, and I get a lot of requests from people that are struggling with visualization. And I started researching creativity and its relationship to visualization, and it was amazing. I found so many different studies and bits of research about this seeming connection, and I learned a lot from it, allowing me to enhance my ability to visualize. One element I definitely haven't discussed enough on the podcast of reality creation is creativity. It may be one of the most important elements that you need to learn in order to create your reality. You're actually creating something. There is a process of creativity that's natural to an artist, even a chef on any level. If you're creating something, you're in that sweet process of creativity and it is linked to visualization. There are many aspects to creativity and I want to learn to be more creative. I try this by doing art and being creative every day, trying to do something creative on a regular basis. And the more I tune into that creative flow state, the better I am at visualizing. And there seems to be a link between the two. Elmer Green, a prominent biofeedback researcher at the Menninger Foundation in Topeka, Kansas, states, it seems increasingly certain that healing and creativity are different pieces of a single picture. The entrance or key to all these inner processes we are beginning to believe is a particular state of consciousness called reverie. Now, visualization is a reliable means for getting access to this particular reverie state. Dr. G. Wallace, a psychologist, theorizes that the creative process consists of four stages, a theory that is widely accepted by researchers in the field of creativity. The four stages Wallace describes are based on the accounts of famous people's creative experiences. He calls the first stage preparation. In this stage, people consciously collect data and methodically file away potential images. They get together the tools and the raw materials that seem applicable to the problems they are working on. And during this preparatory stage, a person's mood is often one of excitement and perplexity. The second stage is called incubation. In this stage, people often release their conscious hold on the problem. They may rest, relax, or turn their attention in another direction. It is theorized that during this stage, images in the unconscious shift and realign themselves. Most current researchers feel that this is the critical stage in creativity because this stage involves a non-ordinary state of consciousness and deals in images. In the incubation stage, a person may get sudden glimpses of parts of the solution they seek. The third stage Walls calls illumination. It is the stage during which the solution or inspiration spontaneously occurs, often at an unexpected moment, usually accompanied by feelings of certainty and joy. This is the moment of discovery when an artist sees outlines of a new painting or a poet records the central lines of a new poem. The fourth and final stage is called verification or revision. In this stage, people work out details and make their ideas manifest in a form or structure. For a scientist, this last stage involves organizing the data 
and conducting the experiments which will prove his theory. For Sculptor, this stage involves solving the technical problems of pouring the bronze and polishing the finished product. This is a stage of effort and skill. Verification, like preparation, is the first stage, is largely a conscious process. The word imagination contains within it the word image. Image meaning a mental picture. Most current theories of creative imagination hold that images exist that are stored in the unconscious mind and that the conscious mind can become aware of them. It is believed that within the unconscious images can become associated to form streams of images that they can juxtapose to form combination images or coalesce and recombine to form entirely new images. All of this activity takes place without a person's awareness, but sometimes the results of these processes surface in conscious thought and catch your attention. New images come to awareness as novel ideas, illuminations, or flashes in ordinary consciousness. They seem to come most readily in a state of reverie that we mentioned at the beginning. The reverie state includes dreams, daydreams, fantasies, visions, hallucinations, hypnagogic and hypnopompic imagery. All of these forms of the reverie state are closer to unconscious thought than to ordinary consciousness, and they provide access to consciousness for images from the unconscious. Receptive visualization likewise provides access to unconscious images. It gives people a more controlled means of getting in touch with the spontaneous new images that form the basis of their creativity. Doing a receptive visualization like experiencing other reverie states allows new images to surface free of censorship from the ego. Ego censors and it often inhibits the formation of new images and tends to make a potential image combine in known stereotypical ways. Another characteristic of receptive visualization is that it puts a person in an attitude of relaxed awareness. This state of relaxed awareness is also achieved by Eastern meditation techniques, which have been used throughout the history by artists in India and Tibet and Japan to stimulate their creative efforts. Because creative images come from the unconscious part of the mind, which is not under the control of the ego, many people feel that such images come automatically from outside themselves. For this reason, some artists have felt that they must surrender to the creative impulse or even become possessed by it. Psychiatrists have noted that images from the unconscious are often symbolic in nature. Creative people likewise frequently receive solutions to their problems in the form of symbolic images. The chemist Kekul's apocryphal dream of a snake holding its tail in its mouth is one common example. Kekul translated the symbol into a workable scientific language with his conception of the benzene ring. Once an idea comes to awareness, a person works to complete his vision and give it form. Programmed visualization provides a means of trying out alterations in and elaborations on the original idea. Creative people have written about the importance of intuition and aesthetic feeling in guiding them to choose which image to pursue. They have often found that the correct solution to a problem was the simplest solution and the one that felt good to them. E.W. Sinat, an American biologist and philosopher, has postulated that creativity is a natural manifestation of life. 
Sanat looks at imagination as a person's ability to picture in his mind's eye something he had not seen, something never experienced. Like other creativity researchers, Sanat believes the creative process takes place in the unconscious, in dreams and half-dreaming states. The mind is filled with a throng of images and fantasies. Here the natural tendencies and predilections of living stuff come to expression. More than all, I think, here, the organizing power of life fashions into orderly patterns the floating fantasies of the unconscious mind. Among the throng of random images and ideas, the unconscious mind rejects certain combinations as unimportant or incompatible, but sees the significance of others. By its means, order, intellectual, aesthetic, perhaps spiritual order is here distinguished from randomness. One must recognize the operation in the unconscious of such an organizing factor, for chance alone is not creative. Just as the organism pulls together random, formless stuff into the pattern system of structure and function in the body, so the unconscious mind seems to select and arrange and correlate these ideas and images into a pattern. The resemblances between the two processes is close. The concept is worth considering that the organizing power of life manifest in mind as well as in body for the two are hardly separable is the truly creative element. Creativity thus becomes an attribute of life itself. We can learn more about the biological basis of creativity from R.W. Girard, a neurophysiologist from the University of Michigan. Girard agrees with the four stages of creativity we discussed in the beginning of this chapter and with the idea that imagination involves the formation of new images in the unconscious. Girard has considered the physiology of perception in relation to imagination in detail. He states that three areas of the cerebral cortex act successively in the interpretation of visual stimuli. Research has shown that direct stimulation of Area 17 in a conscious patient produces an awareness of lights. When the next Area 18 is stimulated, the lights move about, and if the next brain region is excited, complete pictures flash into consciousness as of a man's somersaulting toward the observer. Thus, awareness of sensation, awareness of an organized precept, and awareness of formed image can be related to nervous impulses in specific areas of the brain. Gerard goes on to say that in supplying the substratum for thought, vision in man is surely of overwhelming importance. Modern man is eye-minded. The eye sends impulses along the optic nerve to the brain, and each nerve cell in the brain is connected to many other areas by nerve fibers, like an egg packed in a sticky excelsior and influenced by electric currents in neighboring cells. The nerve cells in the brain are also influenced by adjacent blood vessels, by oxygen, by the levels of blood sugar and salts, by temperature. As a result of these many influences, a particular nerve cell may or may not fire. An example of this is found in the fact that epinephrine lowers the threshold of electric current necessary for a nerve cell to fire. In the brain, nerve cells are continuously active and fire in circuits or loops with excitation going round and round like a pinwheel, throwing off regular sparks of activity on each cycle. Because the firing of a nerve cell is dependent on many influences, including the firing of many cells around it, the whole brain is like a loom with loops of activity affecting each other. Each loop can be looked upon as a closure, 
closure is a basic property of mind. It is the ability to separate a figure from its ground, to formulate a gestalt or form to identify an entity. Closure, then, can be thought to represent an idea, a new image put together from separate images, each caused by firing of a group of neurons, the new image put together by the formation of a neuronal loop. By such various mechanisms, then, great masses of nerve cells, the brain acting as a great unity, act together, and not merely do two or a billion units sum their separate contributions, but each is a part of a dynamic, fluctuating activity pattern of the whole. This is the orchestra which plays through thoughts of truth and beauty, which creates creative imagination. The mechanism by which an idea remains in the brain is still unclear. If a loop is fired again and again, it becomes stable and more easily fired again. Some researchers have speculated that the nerve cells themselves change and that new proteins are synthesized. In the early 1960s, Harold Rugg, an educator at Columbia University, proposed a theory of creativity which embraced the theories of Sonat and Girard and added to them. Rugg wrote that the brain-mind works continually as a modeling computer, averaging through feedback the organism's learned or stored assumptions. Using the word assumption. So to Rugg, this meant that the impulses sent from the eye to the brain had to be interpreted by the mind, for example, if you are holding a smoking pipe in front of you and turn it around, the impulses registered by the eyes provide the brain with entirely different data at each moment. The interpretation of this data as a discrete object rotating upon its own axis involves the equivalent of highly complicated projective geometry. In its interpretation, the mind's computations serve to average or pool the data until it fits in with a learned concept, in this case, smoking pipe. Rugg said that the brain-mind's alpha rhythm, one of a number of brainwave patterns, is the mechanism that scans for the best fit. Each visual concept, such as pipe, that the mind holds is in a real sense a symbol in that it suggests a meaning for a seemingly random set of visual impulses. In cybernetic terms, man is looked at as a goal-seeking animal, one who reacts to a particular situation by seeking the simplest possible act in response to what the situation demands. In terms of visual stimuli, the brain responds to a particular set of visual data by seeking the simplest possible visual concept that fits that data. In its creative expression, Rugg said, the mind is seeking a solution to a problem. It's striving to create a metaphorical image, be it visual, poetic, that interprets disparate sensations, feelings, and or data. Rugg postulated that all this work goes on or takes place in the trans-liminal mind, a dynamic antechamber between the conscious and unconscious mind. He felt that the threshold between the conscious and unconscious is the only part of the mind that is free from censorship. Rugg believed that the transliminal mind, the operating ground of creativity, is the area identified with Eastern meditation states, with light auto-hypnotic trances, with intuition, and with hypnagogic states. The transliminal mind is characterized by a state of relaxed readiness or relaxed concentration. Why do I always relax in meditations, why do I make that so important? Even in affirmation meditations, it's because this relaxation puts you into this hypnagogic state. 
In this state, a suggestion to create is accepted and the creative ideas are viewed by the person as real. To solve a problem, when the transliminal mind freely without censorship scans its images to come up with the simplest meaningful symbol image that answers the problem confronting it. When such a symbol image is found, an idea is born. This is the creative flash. This moment, this flash is what makes possible a new work of art or an experimental breakthrough. Rug felt that the creative flash is inseparable from and necessary to physical manifestation of a creative idea. He believed that the creative moment naturally results in action, like an ideomotor action in which an imagined activity is accompanied by minute but measurable amounts of muscular activity. Neuromotor enhancement studies have shown that these minute muscle movements resulting from the mental image are vastly intensified as the sensory system relays back to the mind impulses which confirm that the body is responding to the image. This is the first step toward the physical manifestation of a mental image. Sanat, Gerard, and Rugg would likely agree that stored images in the mind, which are the basis of new creative ideas, are derived from a person's past perceptions. The most graphic elucidation of this theory is presented in John Livingston's Lowe's book, The Road to Xanadu. In it, Lowe tracks down in extraordinary detail the sources of the images used by Coleridge in his poetry. He traces the images of sea serpents in the rhyme of the ancient mariner to travelogues of explorers to scientific treatises on fish and even to the works of Shakespeare which Coleridge had read. Carl Jung approaches the origin of new images from a different point of view. Rather than trace an image to a past perception, Jung speculates on why man is interested in a particular image at all. Jung divides artistic creation into two categories psychological art which deals with materials drawn from the realm of human consciousness for instance with lessons of life that is with the experiences of life in the outer world and visionary art which derives its existence from the hinterlands of man's mind that suggests the abyss of time separating us from pre-human ages or evokes a superhuman world of contrasting light and darkness young is interested in the second category of artistic endeavor he concerns himself with the images of the vision which reminds him of dreams and fantasies. As to the origin of these images, Jung speculates, is it a vision of other worlds or, or of the obscuring of the spirit or of the beginning of things before the age of man or of the unborn generations of the future? Jung feels that these primordial images are true symbolic expression that is the expression of something existent in its own right but imperfectly known. That's why I believe that Jung was talking about imagination in the same way that Neville Goddard did, that imagination is God and is from this collective unconsciousness. Believing in psychic reality, Jung thinks these images are no less real than physical reality. Rather than theorize that visionary images are the result of a creative goal, he speculates that they often come unbidden and certainly are not under the command of the ego. Do we delude ourselves in thinking that we possess and command our own souls? And is that which science calls the psyche not merely a question mark arbitrarily confined within the skull, but rather a door that opens upon the human world from a world beyond, now and again allowing strange and unseizable potencies to act upon man? 
Jung feels that the artist occasionally catches sight of spirits, demons, gods of the night world. When an artist draws a mandala-like shape, it is as objective a portrayal of inner experience as a bird picture is of a bird. Jung goes on to say that such basic shapes and designs like myths are truly the clearest expression of inner experience. The primordial experience is that source of the artist's creativeness. It cannot be fathomed and therefore requires mythological imagery to give it form. Furthermore, Jung believes that the primordial experience needs bizarre images in order to express itself. He believes that these visions are the expressions of the collective unconsciousness. They are built into the body, inherited by each person, and therefore have primitive character. When an artist is able to see and express these visions, he transcends personal single man and speaks as mankind to mankind, the connection to the social memory complex. Jung believes that the artist is seized by a drive that works through him. The work of an artist has a life of its own, as if it were a unique person. When an artist creates a work of art, it becomes his fate and determines his psychic development. The artist has drawn upon the healing and redeeming forces of the collective psyche in a return to the state of participation mystique to that level of experience at which it is a man who lives and not the individual. Thus, when mankind needs a particular image for its growth or health, Young believe it comes through an artist and is expressed for mankind as the artist's creation. In the rest of this episode, we will deal with some of the ways in which visualization can be used to increase a person's ability to receive creative ideas. All of the theories of creativity that I've discussed share the common assumption that creative ideas are formed in the unconscious following an appropriate and necessary period of incubation. Likewise, most psychologists working in the field of creativity agree that the incubation stage is the critical one. Although, of course, the stages of preparation, illumination, and verification are essential. These theorists also concur that the creative idea comes to consciousness in a moment of illumination. This moment is thought to take place in a state of non-ordinary consciousness. Known variously as transliminal mind, primordial mind, an altered state of consciousness or the reverie state, visualization is a means of willfully putting oneself in this particular state of mind, specifically to become aware of images from unconscious. In terms of creativity, the images that are experienced are unique new images that the unconscious mind forms in its natural tendency to solve problems, create order, and harmonize the universe. The moment of illumination is itself a visualization experience, a dense, wordless, sensory experience symbolic of a highly complicated concept. Many famous people have written about their creative experiences. Indeed, such writings are the basis for the theories of creativity that we have discussed. The accounts that we are most interested in deal specifically with the periods of incubation and illumination. Many accounts have been written, a number of which have become famous examples, frequently quoted in the literature. Several fascinating books have been published from these chronicles. Perhaps the best, most readily available is Brewster Giselin's The Creative Process, which contains 40 such accounts. These reports come from people in a wide variety of fields, science, the visual arts, writing, and music throughout history. Bertrand Russell, the 20th century philosopher and mathematician, has said, in all the creative work that I have done, what has come first is a problem, 
a puzzle involving discomfort. Then comes a concentrated voluntary application involving great effort. After this, a period without conscious thought. And finally, a solution bringing with it the complete plan of a book. Henry Poincaré, a 19th century French mathematician who discovered fusion functions, has written, Every day I seated myself at my work table, stayed an hour or two, tried a great number of combinations, and reached no result. One evening, contrary to my custom, I drank black coffee and could not sleep. Ideas rose in clouds. I felt them collide until pairs interlocked, so to speak, making a stable combination. By the next morning, I had only to write out the results which took but a few hours. Another time, after a great deal of deliberate work, Poincare reports, disgusted with my failure, I went to spend a few days at the seaside and thought of something else. One morning, walking on the bluff, the idea came to me, which is the same characteristics of brevity, suddenness, and immediate certainty. Poincare also discusses receiving ideas in the morning or evening in bed while in a semi-hypnagogic state. Albert Einstein has said he discovered the theory of relativity by picturing himself riding on a ray of light. He has written that words did not play a role in his thought. The psychic entities which seem to serve as elements in thought are certain signs and more or less clear images which can be voluntarily reproduced and combined. The composer Wolfgang Mozart wrote in a letter in 1789, When I am, as it were, completely myself, entirely alone, and of good cheer, say, traveling in a carriage or walking after a good meal, or during the night when I cannot sleep, it is on such occasions that my ideas flow best and most abundantly. My subject enlarges itself, becomes methodized and defined, and the whole, though it be long, stands almost complete and finished in my mind, so that I can survey it like a fine picture or a beautiful statue at a glance. Nor do I hear in my imagination the parts successively, but I hear them, as it were, all at once. The composer Tchaikovsky, in a letter of 1878 wrote, the germ of a future composition comes suddenly and unexpectedly. It takes root with extraordinary force and rapidity. Frequently in a trance state, I thought out the scherzo of our symphony, the moment of its composition exactly as you heard it. The impressionist painter Vincent van Gogh once wrote to his brother, Theo, I have a lover's clear sight or a lover's blindness. I shall do another picture this very night and I shall bring it off. I have a terrible lucidity at moments when nature is so beautiful, I am not conscious of myself anymore, and the pictures come to me as in a dream. Max Ernst, a 20th century abstract painter, has written, The sight of an imitation mahogany panel opposite my bed had induced one of those dreams between sleeping and waking. I was struck by the way the floor obsessed my nervously excited gaze, so I decided to explore the symbolism of the obsession and to encourage my powers of meditation and hallucination. I took a series of drawings from the floorboards by dropping pieces of paper on them at random and then rubbing the paper with black lead. As I looked carefully at the drawings that I got in this way, some dark and others smudgely dim, I was surprised by the sudden heightening of my visionary powers and by the dreamlike succession of contradictory images that came one on top of another with the persistence and rapidity peculiar to memories of love. Ernst said that he worked by excluding all conscious directing of the mind and reducing to a, a minimum the part played by him formerly known as the author of the work. The artist's role is to gather together and then give out that which makes itself visible within him. D.H. Lawrence, the English writer, in describing his painting said, Art is a form of supremely delicate awareness, meaning at oneness, 
the state of being at one with the object. The picture must all come out of the artist's inside. It is the image as it lives in the consciousness, alike like a vision but unknown. Henry Moore, the English sculptor, wrote that the sculptor gets the solid shape as it were inside his head. He mentally visualizes a complex form from all around itself. He knows while he looks at one side what the other side is like. He identifies himself with its center of gravity, its mass, its weight. He realizes its volume as the space that the shape displaces in the air. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, describing himself and how he wrote his poem, Kubla Khan, said, In consequence of a slight indisposition, an anodyne, opium, had been prescribed from the effects of which he fell asleep in his chair at the moment that he was reading the following sentence or words of the same substance in Purchase Pilgrimage. Here is the Khan Kubla, commanded a palace to be built. The author continued for about three hours in a profound sleep, at least of the external senses, during which time he has the most vivid confidence that he could not have composed less than from two to three hundred lines, if that indeed can be called composition, in which all the images rose up before him as things. On awakening, he appeared to himself to have a distinct recollection of the whole, and taking his pen, ink, and paper, instantly and eagerly wrote down the lines that are here preserved. Amy Lowell, an American poet and critic, wrote of her creative experiences, The first thing I do when I'm conscious of the coming of a poem is to seek paper and pencil. It seems as though the simple gazing at a piece of blank paper hypnotizes me into an awareness of the subconscious. I find that the concentration needed for this is in the nature of the trance. Another 20th century American poet, Stephen Spender, has said, A poem is like a face which one seems to be able to visualize clearly in the eye of memory. The poet's job is to recreate his vision. Dr. John Yellett, a research engineer studying glass and steam, has written that he worked very hard without any success on a problem and was becoming obsessed with a fear of failure. Then I was riding on a crowded bus, much absorbed in these personal matters so irrelevant to my scientific work, when suddenly the solution of the problem came to me. In a flash, I visualized the drawing of the proper design of the apparatus, immediately drew out a notebook, and without consciousness of my surroundings, wrote down the answer. One element common to all these accounts is that the creative people were looking back on their creative experiences as a result of this retrospective contemplation. The artist occasionally realized that the creative moment is not purely a matter of chance or utterly beyond their control. Many of the artists became aware of certain recurrent characteristics of illuminative situations. None of them were actively seeking the solution to the particular problem at the moment of their illumination. Rather, they all were thinking of other matters, relaxing, taking walks in the country, gazing at something, or were half asleep, under the influence of drugs or dreaming. In short, they were engaged in situations and activities that we have described earlier as being productive of receptive visualizations. Some of the creative people even noted that they could manipulate the images that came to them in their illuminative flash. In the last 70 years, research Psychologists have begun to study the possibility of increasing people's creative abilities. Dr. Alex Osborne developed a technique that he called applied imagination, which became the basis of thousands of problem-solving courses. Sidney Parnes, a psychologist at the University of Buffalo, conducted a series of experiments using Osborne's technique of deferred judgment. This technique separates idea formation from evaluation or judgment of the worth of the idea. 
In the first part of the technique called the green light stage, students are instructed to free themselves of any inhibition to open their minds and to let their imagination soar. In the second stage, students are told to evaluate the ideas they have come up with, retaining those that seem even remotely possible. This applied imagination technique was purposely designed to allow time for ideas to incubate. Results of Parnes' experiments showed that in relation to a given problem, students who used the technique of deferred judgment got over twice as many unique and useful ideas as students who did not. The green light stage works by uncensoring the subject's thought, thereby freeing them from habit, labeled thought, and the fear of failure or ridiculousness that is associated with ego-bound thought. In this respect, the green light stage is similar to such altered states of consciousness as the reverie state we mentioned at the beginning. Another technique developed to increase personal creativity is discussed in the book by W.J. Gordon called Synectics. The Synectics technique involves free association around the subject of a problem, concentrating on metaphors and analogies. Gordon gives the example of a group that is trying to invent a new kind of roof that will be white in summer, reflecting heat, and black in winter, absorbing heat. The discussion about things in nature that change color, such as weasels, chameleons, flounders. One group member said that the flounder changes color by releasing pigments from lower layers of skin to higher ones. Another group member hearing this had a flash of insight, build the roof out of black material with tiny white balls in it, which will expand when the roof gets hot, rise, and turn the roof white. The synectics experience seems to allow people to become aware of metaphors, similarities, and images from their unconscious without ego censorship. Results from courses using deferred judgment and synectics provide experimental evidence that people can increase their ability to receive creative ideas. Researchers in the field have found in the accounts of creative people conditions that seem to foster the emergence of creative ideas. These conditions can be divided into two categories mental attitudes and actions. Mental attitudes provide the background for receptive visualization. Jerome Bruner, a Harvard University psychologist and educator, suggests a number of conditions for fostering new ideas, of which the first are detachment and commitment. By detachment, Bruner means disengaging oneself from conventional or known ideas. By commitment, he means having a deep need to understand the problem or express new ideas. The second set of conditions Bruner suggests is passion and decorum. By passion, Bruner means the willingness and ability to let one's impulses express themselves in one's life through one's work. By decorum, he means respect for the forms and the materials that limit one's work. Next, Bruner stresses the importance of freedom to be dominated by the object, by which he means permitting the creative work to develop its own life and being willing to serve it. Bruner also talks about deferral and immediacy. He says that one must have an urge to find the problem solution immediately, but at the same time must have the ability to wait for the right solution. The last condition Bruner describes is internal drama. By that he means the ability to become aware of mental figures that personify different aspects within oneself and that approach the problem in different ways. Bruner suggests that an interchange between these figures often produces novel solutions to the problems. In his book, How to Think Creatively, Elliot Hutchinson, a Cambridge University researcher, has included a number of hints about the attitudes that underlie the birth of a creative idea. Increase your motivation by anticipating the satisfactions of achievement. Increase your preparation by believing the problem is not insoluble for you. 
Believe the answer will come, although you may have to wait or grow. Realize that rest is essential when you feel defeated by a problem. During the resting period, the stage of incubation, there are certain things people can do to increase the natural flow of inner images. There are things people can do to make it most likely they will receive spontaneous visualizations. Hutchinson makes the following suggestions. Organize your time so as to give yourself as complete freedom as possible. Be alone and silent and determine the conditions under which you are most likely to spontaneously visualize and watch for images. In many of the accounts that I've discussed earlier, creative people were aware of specific physical conditions or actions during which they got their ideas. Mozart commented that his ideas often came while riding in a carriage or walking after a good meal. Some of the conditions most frequently cited by creative people include the following, riding in a car, train, or airplane, walking at leisure, bathing, reading, not with an eye to solving the problem, watching a television or movie, listening to music, napping while in the middle of the night, dreaming under the influence of drugs, meditating, gazing, or staring at an object. The basic state of relaxed attention fostered by such activities corresponds with the non-ordinary states of mind that we said earlier accompany the visualization state and creative illumination. Beyond these more general conditions, many creative people have written of personal idiosyncratic conditions they believe fostered their creative visualizations. Many of these conditions are sensory in nature. The psychologist McKellar has referred to them as sensory cues. The poet Schiller was stimulated by the odor of decomposing apples, which he always kept in his desk. Nolson, in 1917, wrote a book in which he collected examples of such idiosyncrasies. Samuel Johnson spoke of needing a purring cat, an orange peel, and a cup of tea in order to write. Proust wrote in a soundproof room. Kipling needed a jet black ink to write. Kant wrote at precise times of day, in bed staring at a tower, and was so disturbed when trees began to obscure the tower that he had them cut down. Hutchinson lists further examples. Rousseau thought bareheaded in full sunshine. Beethoven poured cold water over his head, believing it stimulated his brain. Rossini covered himself with blankets while composing. Dickens turned his bed to the north, believing that the magnetic forces helped him to create. The poet Stephen Spender has written that he depended on coffee and tobacco while writing. These eccentricities, he believed, provided a kind of anchor of sensation with the physical world one completely forgot for the time being that one has a body. We understand from neuro-linguistic programming that you can anchor states. So when you become creative, remember what is going on around you. If you had the smell of oranges or a purring cat, you can use those things in the future to anchor that creative state again. Whatever the reason for such eccentricities, they seem to be characteristic of creative effort. Many creative people have speculated that such conditions increase concentration which, as I have discussed, increases the ability to visualize. Another theory explaining the universal usefulness of these phenomenon is simply that creative people themselves have faith in them, faith being an important condition underlying visualization. One can even speculate that through conditioning, these idiosyncratic actions come to act as stimuli which trigger or induce visualization states. The whole process is then reinforced by the occurrence of visualizations and by the usefulness of them. There are many details concerning the conditions associated with creative effort. In order that you can develop your own conditions, 
for receiving spontaneous visualizations and thereby increasing their creativity. The reason this episode is important, a lot of times you'll be asked in a meditation or in some manifestation technique to visualize something. People struggle with that. Manifesting through organized visualization for many people is difficult to impossible. But you also get these visualizations that pop up in your head. So by understanding the nature of creativity, you can bring about the process of these spontaneous visualizations and then therefore you can increase your creativity. I believe that the conditions surrounding creative effort, the conditions under which people receive spontaneous visualizations can be consciously created, reproduced and controlled. The door to the creative state is receptive visualization. Receptive visualization occurs at a level of non-ordinary consciousness which produces inner imagery. The receptive visualization state has all the characteristics associated with the stages of incubation and creative illumination. You can access images from the unconscious. There's no ego censorship, freedom from labeled ideas, identification with the object image. Here then is a receptive visualization for creativity. Find a quiet space where you'll be undisturbed, which has been favorable for the past in your creative work. Make yourself comfortable. Let your eyes close. Breathe in and out deeply, allowing your abdomen to rise and fall. And as you breathe and it becomes slow and even, you'll start to feel relaxed. Now deeply relax your whole body in stages by whatever technique works best for you. Scan your body, go through the different parts of the body, deepen this heavy, warm feeling of relaxation by slowly counting backwards from 10 to 1. And as you mentally say each number, you become more and more relaxed. Eventually, you reach a level where you can easily receive images. The images will be vivid. They are images which will provide you with inspirations for artistic endeavor, scientific work, or creative problem-solving of any kind. The relaxation is the important part. If you can learn to eliminate your ego in this process, it also helps. As the images appear before you, you will feel even more relaxed. The images will come clearer and clearer, and they will flow more and more easily. At this creatively receptive level of mind, let the images flow, watching them appear and disappear, combine and coalesce, merge and separate. Let the images play before your inner senses. As you continue to see images, allow your receptive state of mind to open the doors of your psyche. At this deeper level of mind, let the images have access to all the perceptions of your mind and body, of mankind, of the universe. Stay at this level as long as you wish. When you return to your ordinary level of consciousness, you will remember clearly the images you have visualized. Allow your receptive unconscious to choose the images you will remember most clearly. Each time you receptively visualize in this way, the images will be clear, flow more easily, and be more useful to you in your creative work. To return to your ordinary level of consciousness, just count from one to three and gently move some part of your body. Wiggle your fingers and toes and allow yourself to return slowly and open your eyes when you feel ready to do so. You'll feel rested, full of energy, and ready to do whatever work is necessary to put your creative idea into form. A variation on this receptive visualization might include creating a mental studio or laboratory, visualizing sensory cues that will stimulate the flow of ideas, using time distortion or accelerated mental processes to do a large amount of creative work in a short time or meeting an inner guide to help a person with your work. Mind games uh, 
book that I used for a wonderful visualization technique in another meditation. A book by the psychologists Robert Masters and Gene Houston provides several visualization runs dealing with creativity and advanced accelerated mental processes. Part of the Masters and Houston exercises deals with meeting a teacher under accelerated time conditions. And now you'll be given one minute of clock time and this will be sufficient to give you the experience of meeting in the world of images a most exceptional artist who is also a very good art teacher and this teacher will ask you to draw. You the artist will draw and then you will receive from this teacher instruction about how to make your artwork more effective. You practice doing more drawings, receiving more criticism and benefiting from it and you will have these amazing experiences. When you program yourself to do that, it's powerful. The characteristics of the images that people receive during receptive visualization are the same as those of images created and received by creative people in a moment of illumination. These can include a feeling of correctness, a feeling of surprise, a sense of the answer appearing whole, a sense of the answer appearing in shorthand form, a sense of the answer appearing in symbolic form, a feeling of release and joy if the image relates to an important problem. Programmed visualization gives creative people a chance to work with and perfect their creative ideas. That's why certain meditations can be very, very powerful. It can be the counterpart to and or a continuation of the receptive visualization state. During programmed visualization, creative people can work with their images, manipulate them, evaluate changes without having to resort to material form. In programmed visualization, people can be guided by their feelings in selecting which changes are right and which should not be used. Using feelings as a guide corresponds to the artist's intuition and to organizing center. Using programmed visualization to play with images and evaluate them can make it possible for artists and creative people to achieve a final image even though they did not initially visualize the image as a whole. People can even develop an image entirely based on no initial visualization by building it up piece by piece, keeping lines that feel good and erasing those that do not. In this way, people can bring to awareness images that exist in their unconscious they have previously been unable to visualize. Here is a program visualization for creativity. Close your eyes, breathe in and out slowly and deeply. Allow yourself to relax. Go to a level where you can visualize where images flow freely and easily. Allow an image to come to mind that you are working on or that you saw in a receptive visualization. Move your eyes over the image and allow it to become more and more vivid and clear. As you scan the image, you may see it change before you or you may get an idea for changing it. Now look at the changed image. If the image feels right, retain the new form. If the image does not feel right, allow it to return to its previous form. In changing the image, you may find yourself mentally using the tools inherently required by the materials or you may find the image changes without the need of such tools. Continue working in this manner, making changes until you feel the image is complete. And when you have finalized an image or images, return to your ordinary conscious state by counting slowly from one to three and gently moving your fingers or toes. I've tried to give you some background scientific information, some examples of artists that have been creative, and some simple exercises that you can use. You may not desire to be an artist or creative in any way, but I'm telling you, you need to focus on your creativity. You are an artist. You're a reality artist, a reality composer. And you have to be in a state of constant creativity. If you want to create a reality, but you don't know anything about creativity, 
the two don't mix very well. You must find a way to tap in to your creative side. Your creative side is your powerful side, the side that can create. And there is a process in creation. You are a reality artist and you go through a period of incubation on what you want to do. A lot of times what we're trying to do in creating a reality is we're solving problems and there is no solution to the problem immediately. You may visualize the end point, but there is a process involved in creating that reality. And this gives you some idea of the aspects of visualization and creativity. Many of you might find this not very interesting or complicated, but to me, it really elucidates the power of the mind to create visualization and helps me to change my understanding of visualization. Hopefully it helps you if you're in a creative endeavor, some of this information might help you. In any case, you can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com and welcome to The Reality Revolution.